Hey y'all, it's Garth. The Big 615. You're going to hear the newest that country music has to offer. At the same time, you're going to hear the newest that the country classics have to offer. I want to hear the new single from George Strait. And I want to hear it right beside the new single from Luke Combs. That's the thing we call the Big 615. Download the free TuneIn app from the App Store. That's TuneIn. Or ask your device to play the Big 615 on TuneIn. Hey there, it's your friend Stormy Warren here, and I want to invite you to my new home, The Big 615, exclusively on TuneIn. It's the official home of country music broadcasting live from Nashville to the world. Get the latest on country music, from your favorite artists to the hottest songs climbing up the charts. Oh, and it's commercial free. Hear it all on The Stormy Warren Show, weekdays from 7 a.m. to 1 p.m. Central. Download the free TuneIn app from the App Store. That's TuneIn. Or ask your device to play The Big 615 on TuneIn. Tune in. Welcome to Garden Views. Interesting conversations with interesting people who have done and or are doing interesting things. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome everyone into Garden Views and we're welcoming back now our third time guest, uh, Professor Trisha DeGenero. Now, since it's her third time, I'm definitely not reading all of the places and things she's done because there's just too many of them. So we're going to point that she's a senior fellow and project lead for the Balkans Next Research Initiative at Joint Special Operations University, but she's done a million other things. Uh, she's worked at places like New York University and George Mason University, Department of National Intelligence, U.S. Army, Department of, uh, Director of National Intelligence, things like that that you, know, you might have heard of. But if you want to hear everything, definitely listen to the prior two shows, which you should do anyway. So this is great. We are covering sort of, this is like a recurring series. It's not like a recurring series. It is a recurring series. We're talking about things that we need to know about. Um, I'm going to need to come up with a more clever title, but last time we talked about a bunch of things, and uh, Professor DiGennaro had three sort of Foreign and three domestic. I'm in the U.S., so take that as it is. Uh, we ended up covering a whole lot more because of my questions and things like that. Now, three of the regions and or specifics that we talked about are probably going to get raised again um, because we're recording today, June 27, 2023. And for anyone who's aware, there was recently maybe a coup, semi-revolt, something in, in Russia with their Wagner group, which is a, you know, a mercenary private army that's, you know, pretty much all but formally associated with the Russian army and Putin's uh, former private chef, former best friend, maybe now worst enemy, I don't know. Apparently it was brokered by Belarus. Maybe it was just someone pretending it was Be Belarus and it was being a puppet again. Maybe it's real. I don't know. Um, and also Sudan. We talked about Sudan and that ceasefire broke down and there's been uh, fighting there again. And uh, since Russia was having so much uh, fun in their own little neck of the woods, they decided to flex their muscles and they bombed some Syrians again. So all, those are all things we talked about before. I don't know if we're talking about all of those things, uh, but I'm sure we're talking about some of them. So instead of me speculating and wasting time, Professor, thank you for coming back in and, and let us know what do we need to know about? This week, I'm hitting more on international issues than I am going to hit on domestic issues because I think right now, um, 
a lot of things are going on out there that we need to talk about. And I think that a couple of them are out there in the news and people have been hearing a lot of different things. So I thought maybe we could first and foremost um, discuss the Wagner group you brought up, the Russian uh, regulated, or I would say it is kind of a regulated militia <laughs> um, because it certainly has um, the, the backing of the Kremlin. And I think this is a, a really interesting issue because of uh, Vladimir Putin or President Putin's long-term relationship with Pervozin, who is the, you know, the lead or the, the head of the Wagner group as a whole. Um, but they're not just in the Ukraine. So this, this takes on a much larger dynamic, I think. So the one thing that, that's really important is that Pervozin um, has known Putin for a very long time. They have a big, long history, and he helped him make a lot of money in the past. He then took on leadership of this militia group, which works in various parts of the world, including not only Ukraine, but Syria, parts of Afri Africa, in including areas in the Sahel. And um, he's quite instrumental and I would say interconnected with a military, um, with the state military. And part of his issue um, with the current events is that that state military was not running its own organization up to par or what he thought it was was up to par so that's where kind of that started and then it spiraled into some of his troops being targeted while they were in ukraine so they turned around and decided to show a little um, resentment for that and and uh go back go back home to russia I'm not sure Putin liked them very much. Yeah, apparently there's a city in Russia, I think it's called Rostov or something of that nature, right over the border with Ukraine, a city of a million people. I never heard of it before, but it's a million people. That's not a small city. That's a that's a major league city here in the United States. Um, and uh, they basically took over the entire city without a shot being fired. And it looked like the populace was all about wine and roses with them, you know, so almost how we were, we, how the United States was sort of sold that the people in uh, Iraq were going to greet us with roses. And, and and that's how they were greeted there. Even as Bergozin was leaving, there were pictures of people like rushing up to his SUV, not, not menacingly, but to thank him and shake his hand and cheering him on. And, and then he was missing for a couple of days and no one was sure where he was. Government of Belarus said, we don't know where he is. The government of the United States said, we don't know where he is. But then apparently, I think today or maybe last night, they said, yeah, he, he's here in Belarus. I, I don't know if that's the case. Putin's been, I, I mean, w within like 36 hours, they sort of went from revolt to, we were just kidding. We're stopping. We just wanted to make a point. It was a protest. We always, we still love you, Vladimir. And then Putin saying, okay, you know, we're going to prosecute all of you to no charges are dropped. And, uh, you know, Wagner guys, you can sign a contract with the Russian military. But if you want to go to Belarus, you can go to Belarus with your former boss or your current boss, and maybe they can still keep some of their contracts. And maybe you can go back to the Middle East and Africa and, and do all the horrible things we want you to do there uh, like you like doing before. You just can't do it here uh, because we have our own troops here. and We're worried that you may turn on them at any time or they may turn on you. Um, now, what I understand about Wagner past that is that 
it's a mercenary group, so they did have some of the best of the best, but also they were given the responsibility for the worst of the worst. So when Russia was sort of running out of their conscripts, they sort of sent them, like they opened up the prisons and sent them all people and they gave them to Wagner. So basically, although, you know, uh, Omaha Beach style running into machine guns, the, those those were under Wagner as well, but they were intentional cannon fodder, I guess. And then, and then their real troops would come in and, you know, hopefully have less resistance. Um, how much of that is right? How much is wrong? Uh, I don't know. Take it from there. Yeah, there's been a there's been a lot of uh, reports about who was fighting with the group, especially in Ukraine. Um, definitely reports that uh, they were taking people out of prisons, but not only in Russia, they were taking people out of prisons in the Central Asian stand countries as well um, to kind of fortify some of the troops. So, you know, right, like you said, it's hard to tell sometimes what what these uh, what what reports are necessarily true or not. But I think it's pretty clear that, um, you know, Russia is sacrificing a lot of its soldiers just to stay in the fighter. It's mercenary members of that group. And I think that made the person pretty upset, which, I, you know, I kind of don't blame him because he's trying to, you know, to win some battles. Whether or not that's the battle we're supporting is another story. But, um, you know, he's really trying to carry out his own mission. And so that's a bit frustrating when you don't have um, the support from the nation state that's purporting to, you know, have your back, so to speak. And we even saw this with our own troops in Iraq, right? Remember the old adage, you go to war with what you have? I sure do. <laughs> Instead of what you want. Um, but, yeah, I think that's a lot of pro a problem there. I think, you know, we have a couple lessons that I think we all could learn from the national security and geopolitical aspects. I think the first one is be careful of mercenary groups. Um, even in our own country, what we might want to say are militias. You build a militia, sometimes they, those militias will not go away when you want them to and when you're ready for them to go away. And this is going to hold true. We'll see this, I guarantee you, um, in the Middle East as those things calm down, which we'll get to in a few minutes. But um, I think, you know, the other issue is that when you, when you bring in some some forces and allow them more latitude and they're not really under the leadership of the military, you are, are going to have to worry about some of this backlash. Um, they're not official. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're the epitome of the all-volunteer volunteer force, right? Right. <laughs> Where they don't have state backing, but they have state sanctioning to go in there. And, and I think that that's a big issue that, you know, we need to look at. I think the third thing is, is that, you know, we got to find a way to stop this and get out of it. Um, you know, I, I think we found a weakness uh, in 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 the Russian kind of strategy uh, in the in the region, and um, I think we have to figure out a way how how to use it to our advantage and leverage it. And this may be some way to help Putin again save some face and get out, stop this fight, get people back into their own borders. Um, I don't, I'm not guaranteeing that, I wouldn't hold my breath for that, but I still think that that's really important to look at that diplomatic solution, uh, which we need to think more and more about these days, and we're seeing more and more displacement, violence, you know, problems with maintaining that so sovereign state, and um, we, we have to kind of think 
back to a little Westphalian ideas, I think, in how much do we want to honor sovereignty of the state? And, and you know, who's in this? Is Russia in this too? Is China in this too? Who else can, can we help us leverage this? This is a pretty dangerous situation, as you might also um, imagine, and I'll sum this up. But I, you know, I think when you have these root elements, you just don't know what they're capable of. Let's not forget that there is a nuclear facility in the middle of the Ukraine. Um, there have been lots of reports and rumors back and forth, and I think propaganda machines um, kind of warning people of the risk of something happening to that nuclear facility or just the use of some different type of, um, I don't know, low-scale nuclear dirty bomber or weapon. Right. And I think these are extremely, extremely um, worrisome when you're dealing with an organization that's kind of out there on its own making its own decisions. Yeah, that, I was going to ask you what sounds like a very simple question, but I'm sure the audience realizes it's not, and that's who's we, you know, with quotes around the word we. Um, is it the United States? Is it the United States and NATO? Is it the United Nations? Is it, is it you know, is it any coincidence that we all of a sudden recently started talking to China again and Iran and that there was a maybe a little bit over the top state visit for Modi, who is the, you know, the, the duly elected leader of the world's largest democracy, but some of his in inclinations are sort of anti-liberal democracy, but again, very popular in his own country. So, I mean, it's their government um, and they are a nuclear power and the most populous country in the world. Now they, they have surpassed China. Uh, you know, they don't have the economic power, but, but they could get there. Um, you know, given the right kind of support. Um, now, my understanding of, of that dinner, that state visit, is that we made some assurances to meaning the, the West, the United States primarily, if maybe exclusively, but I'm not sure that the Indians made many assurances, um, which seems a little bit one-sided. You know, some obviously we don't know, know all the details, but that might be because there was a decision made that, you know, we need them more for this right now than 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 we need them to be signing any deals to you know buy x amount of soybeans from you know farmers or whatever. Um, so I don't know. Uh, I, I went in a big roundabout circle, which is my milieu. Uh, but the question was, who's we, and and are these things related? Yeah, I think that's a very good question, especially now when people are just picking up to go and fight again. I mean. We've definitely seen this throughout history, where um, there's battles between certain certain um, groups of, of people within the, you know, within the same area, and people are going, you know, just taking up arms. We saw this in, you know, Ireland, Israel, Palestine. We've seen this, you know, in, in other places in Spain throughout history. But now we're seeing a lot of international players, you know, just the international individuals picking up arms and going to different countries. And I think that um, we really have to sit back and think a little bit about what our strategy is on that. And in addition, you know, you brought up India and you brought up Modi. This is a, the visit we had this this past week. Um, it wasn't exactly on my topics, but was like, well, we, we might as well pick it up. So um, I think you're seeing a lot of movement in the East with parties. Um, 
not necessarily loyalties, uh, but um, trying to hedge, I would say, and balance both uh, the U.S., China, Russia, Iran. I mean, there's all of these major players that smaller countries right now are trying to balance both to maintain their own systems, whether they be authoritarian or not, their own relationships with these different parties, and you know how are they going to not not necessarily align with but balance the east and the west and you know india's always stayed quite neutral when we've asked them to kind of choose between us and china or us and russia they have a lot of economic ties to both of those countries they've told us over the years that they can be partners and cooperate in certain areas but they're not going to be necessarily a steadfast ally like we had in britain or someone else so i think these are important things to understand and and then are are is the u.s government and the u.s national security apparatus Hey y'all, it's Garth. I love the country music family. I love the country music family of artists and the country music family of songs. Some of the greatest artists to ever grace music are under the flag of country music. And some of the greatest songs in music history are under the flag of country music. The Big 615, you're going to hear the newest that country music has to offer. At the same time, you're going to hear the newest that the country classics have to offer. I want to hear the new single from George Strait, and I want to hear it right beside the new single from Luke Combs. And I think the country music family is one of those families that is very inclusive and wants both the established artists and the new artists to be side by side in this thing we call country music. Download the TuneIn app from the App Store. That's TuneIn. And by the way, yes, it's free. You can also ask your device to play The Big 615 on TuneIn. Hey, y'all, it's Garth. The Big 615. You're going to hear the newest that country music has to offer. At the same time, you're going to hear the newest that the country classics have to offer. I want to hear the new single from George Strait, and I want to hear it right beside the new single from Luke Combs. That's the thing we call The Big 615. Download the free TuneIn app from the App Store. That's TuneIn. Or ask your device to play The Big 615 on TuneIn themselves how to balance these, you know, this big chessboard of pieces that, you know, is often more than just 2D. It, you know, I always say it's my 8D, 8-level chessboard. And if you can't figure that out, you know, you're going to have some problems, especially in today when we don't just have the U.S. and the uh, old Soviet Union power that are kind of have two feet on each parts of the world and are, are quelling most people that want to rise up or do something differently. Right. So do you think that India is going, I mean, the instability in that region can't possibly benefit them. And I can't imagine China is really thrilled with it either. Um, what, what appeals can we make to those two nations, if any, without looking, you know, or uh, without looking like we have had in hand to say, Hey, listen, talk, talk, Talk to your people over there or stop buying, you know, stop buying Russian arms and buy Western arms. Or does that make it worse? I mean, what 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 makes it better? What what 
strengthens our ties to them without making the situation worse? Or do we just have to say, listen, we trust you. We trust that in five years that, that, that things will go better, uh, but we, we need you to pressure them to do something, or, or is that just always a bad idea? Well, I think, you know, it's looking at different ways to engage. I mean, we, we engage primarily militarily with a lot of different nations. We're obviously the greatest supplier of military wares. We, you know, outpace just about everyone. Um, we overmatch all of them, if you will. Um, so I, I think looking at some things like technology, like infrastructure, partnerships, and improvements, um, would help more in India than talking about arms because I think that they're they they every nation knows that they need some kind of military to help deter, right? They want deterrence from others coming into their country, but it's not everyone that feels or every nation that feels that they really have the power to fight conventionally or asymmetrically with the United States, right? So yeah. or or China or Russia for that matter. And so I think looking at different types of cooperation um, in those ways, technology, artificial intelligence, um, infrastructure development, you know, India is a very large market. We are always looking economically at ways to improve our economic engagement and influence. And, and that's, that's the way that we need to start growing and, and depend less on military Buying the world with military equipment and wares. Because that, that also puts the US at a disadvantage, right? That goes back to the, the Eisenhower warning of the military industrial complex. And if that's all we have to offer the world, that's very, you know, that puts us in a very, us at the US, in a very precarious position because we're losing our economic leverage, our diplomatic leverage. And our informational leverage is true when you look at the, the information environment now and the amount of disinformation that's, that's being flooded through that and the manipulation that other countries are using that way. So I think we got we have to look a little deeper, build a little better strategy, and understand that you know we, we have a lot of places we can engage, and not everybody needs to be an enemy. Mm -hmm. Sometimes. In Sun Tzu's words, right? You need to know your enemy better than your friend. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I'm not. I, I think sometimes we're too quick to label someone else out of bias instead of really understand what the underlying circumstances are and how we need to address those circumstances so we build better relationships. Yeah, I'm not, and this is might be mostly rhetorical. You know the. Uh, the same corners who were sort of against helping Ukraine a year ago, a year and a half ago, maybe still are. I'm already, you know, seeing them like assuming that the, the war is going to end or Ukraine's going to win or whatever the case. And, you know, you know, and, and of course, people are talking about planning about helping Ukraine rebuild. And they're like, you see, they're talking about rebuilding Ukraine. Do you think this was ever about Ukrainian sovereignty? It's like, I mean, you know, uh, a year and a half ago, you were sure they were going to lose in three days. Now you're sure that there was a big conspiracy. That, but, but you can't. People who move goalposts, you can't convince them not to. They're, they're, they, they truly believe in whatever their belief is that moment. The point I'm trying to make with that is that imagine trying to do that and being part of that, and then also like trying to do that with India too. Well, I mean. 
while the perception is sort of ignoring or short shrifting the domestic front, and we need lots of infrastructure too. Sure, that we have an we have an infrastructure bill, and there's Build Back Better, and the 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 uh, the the internet bill that that you know the money's starting to be allocated now, and all that. But there's never enough, and you know, and the the easy scapegoat is you know the others, and you know. India is a big other. So, I, you know, I don't know if there's an answer to that. I don't even know if you want to even touch that at all or just move on to the other topics. It's just an observation that, I could, you know, I, I could just see the same crowd and that would have very populist purchase to say, spending all the money in India, what, what, what do we need? What are we doing that for? Well, again, it's, it's economic investment versus military support, right? If you're investing economically, you're bringing, bringing jobs, you're bringing in, hopefully, hopefully the Congress will get together, you're bringing in money to the U.S., you're bringing in taxes, things like this. Um, so you're creating money, you're creating business, you're creating more wealth in an economic position, you're creating a better, hopefully better life for people. Um, that's the idea of investing in an economic way or an infrastructure way, right? Why here's my domestic <laughs> pee, pet peeve all the time is I'm like, what is Ron DeSantis doing? I have potholes all over my, you know, backyard. Why do I need to talk about, you know, woke? So fix my potholes, you know, right. fix my bridges. There's more there's more you know, construction in Tampa than <laughs> than one needs. So do something beneficial to, to make people's lives better. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is, you know, you, you know, people do that. Where are we getting this money that we're sending to the Ukraine? We, you know, we just announced today, right? The US announced today. They're sending another 500, I think it was a million dollars of, of, of equipment um, to Ukraine. But that doesn't, that's not monetary. And this is what we have to remember. And you know, for it or against it, again, what we're doing is we're supporting our military industrial complex. We have leftover tanks and whatever tanks and ranks and automobiles, trains and automobiles that we, we don't want. Right. And we certainly don't need them. But we've spent a lot of money on them. So now we pick them up, we send them to Ukraine, they can use them against Russia. And we say, oh, look, we just gave you $500 million in equipment, right. um, which we've already paid for. Right, we probably we've already paid for because we already paid the military industrial complex to make these things. And we'll probably pay, repay the military industrial complexes another time to to, to to remake them. You know, and maybe oh, more because <laughs> yeah, because maybe it'll also convince other countries who are still using Russian tanks to start buying, you know, American tanks, which are more. Uh, Especially NATO countries, you know, they're, 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 so that they can be more easily integrated. But again, I, I mean, I think a lot of people don't, when they see these numbers, they think it's new money. What they don't realize is that it's already money that's already part of the budget. It's already been approved. It's just money that wouldn't go someplace else. But it's not like the, you know, whatever billion number of billion dollars per year from the Pentagon, it's not like they would take it and all of a sudden, like, you know, put it towards the opiate crisis you know it's it, that's that's not where we're to go we we'll just go to build uh, you know the f-37s or whatever you know or or or, or something else um because it's part of the defense department right and and one thing i know about government is that if if your department or your agency or whatever has gotten a budget that's allocated you spend every cent of it and and make your case for more because if you don't 
you're going to get less next time around. And it's sort of this always this chasing your tail effect. Um, anyway, so yeah, I'm, I'm sure that that though wasn't uh, uh, everything on your list and we've gone 25 minutes. Yeah, but, you know, this is a good thing for, for, for Americans to hear because sometimes this is how we do think. We don't run our house budget like this, right? right. We, we don't. We say, okay, well, we're going to have this much income coming in. This is our budget for electricity, heat, groceries, whatever it is. And then next year, either, you know, we figure out, did we make that budget, overspend, underspend, how much credit? We don't, we don't say, oh, look, we spent all our money now, and next year we get more. Right. Because right? <laughs> last year, we already paid for all those things. Right. Exactly. And so it's just, you, you don't pay for all that stuff before hand beforehand so every year you're you're paying for the stuff for next year basically. yeah especially since i mean i think people are trained i want to say people i mean the, the the managers the department heads are trained to say not just to say we need more but we were not able to finish this with what you allocated so we not only do we need more in the same amount but we need an increase to to get this finished and you know whoever supported them before kind of you know either goes along with it or Whatever it is, it's it's That's the favorite part of my budget. Like my budget discussions is when we're talking about how I don't know, name any you know large military company comes in and says, "Well, I need a hundred dollars to build that tank," and then you say, "Okay," and then next year they come in and they say, "Oh, no, now I need three thousand dollars to build that tank." So you say, "Okay," so you give them three thousand dollars. Next year they come in and they say, "Oh, we need four thousand extra dollars." on top of the other $3,100. And it just keeps snowballing that way. And it gets, you know, the budget, this is where the budgets get out of control. Right. right. So anyway, this is a good topic for, for people to understand because sometimes I don't think they understand. It's like buying your car, telling your, you know, the car dealer, you'll give them $100. And the next thing he goes, oh, no, no, I really need three. Right. <laughs> and the next thing he's like, no, I need six. Right, and you still, and you still haven't got you're you're still buying the same car for four years, but it's not even like you're paying a note on it. You haven't you haven't seen it yet. Right, your loan keeps going up and so down. Anyway, all right. So within the context of staying kind of in the same region, the the next um, uh, topic that I you know I think is really really important. Um, is the the Chinese brokered peace agreement between Saudi Arabia and Iran? Um, Iran and Saudi Arabia have been pretty staunch, kind of polar, polarized, staunchly polarized. I'll say I'm not necessarily enemies, but um, they claim to be the the overseer, the have oversight of each part of the. Muslim religion, Iran, the Shia half, and I'm simplifying this, and Saudi Arabia, the Sunni half. So they're often competing for regional influence. And, um, you know, with the hearts and minds, as you say, of, of the populations, not only their own, but regional ones as well. But this is a landmark peace deal. I mean, it's been over seven years since the countries have had relations. Um, Iran is just opened its embassy again in Riyadh and vice versa in Tehran with Saudi Arabia. So I think this is a big, big change and it's important for several reasons. 
Um, one, the first highly important uh, issue is that it has led us to a more normalization of the Syrian regime. Now we've tried to push the Syrian regime out. Again, we'll go back to you. We have the United States of America and the West. Um, we have a very, you know, very uh, embedded policy where we depose leaders we don't like. Um, and we've tried to do that with Bashar uh, al-Assad, but this particular peace agreement is going to shift that because Saudi Arabia has already moved forward in bringing Assad back in Syria, back into the Arab League, therefore giving his legitimacy as the leader of that regime back to him. Now, why is this really important? <laughs> it's really important because what we're seeing is uh, a coordination between regional countries who are very tired of conflict and very tired of the criminal activities and the cross-border problems they have had because of the violence that has been supported by both Saudi Arabia in many cases and some of their Gulf counterparts and Iran. So, so we, we started the, sh the, the conversations talking about militias and I think what you're starting to see right away is Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and then Iran putting some of their support of their proxy militia forces in Syria and Iraq, which is duly important. That is duly important. <laughs> there. <laughs> and, the, the, and it's already sort of happened in Yemen. I wondered, it, since we have both Sunni and Shia at the table, you know, I, I don't know what the Uyghurs are, but I imagine they fall into one of those sects. Someone will probably tell me, no, it's a different sect entirely. Um, but is part of this that the Chinese are going to stop what, you know, seems like uh, some form of genocide or whatever group enslavement, whatever that word for geno that, that equivalent is, or, or some combination of both, is it going to stop? Or is it just the Chinese brokered this? This is to help Iran and Saudi Arabia in the region, and and nobody's talking about uh, the Uyghurs. There's very little talk about the Uyghurs. I think the main um, strategy here for China is twofold. One is the sooner you get peace between Iran and Saudi Arabia, um, the more open economic flow of oil and gas there's going to be, and the more ability there's going to be for China to, to invest freely in both without antagonizing one party or the other. And in addition, helping both sides to, to have some, some further economic stability, which in Iran's case, they really could use. Um, Hey y'all, it's Garth. I love the country music family. I love the country music family of artists and the country music family of songs. Some of the greatest artists to ever grace music are under the flag of country music. And some of the greatest songs in music history are under the flag of country music. 
the Big 615, you're going to hear the newest that country music has to offer. At the same time, you're going to hear the newest that the country classics have to offer. I want to hear the new single from George Strait, and I want to hear it right beside the new single from Luke Combs. And I think the country music family is one of those families that is very inclusive and wants both the established artists and the new artists to be side by side in this thing we call country music. Download the TuneIn app from the App Store. That's TuneIn. And by the way, yes, it's free. You can also ask your device to play The Big 615 on TuneIn. Hey, y'all, it's Garth. The Big 615. You're going to hear the newest that country music has to offer. At the same time, you're going to hear the newest that the country classics have to offer. I want to hear the new single from George Strait, and I want to hear it right beside the new single from Luke Combs. That's the thing we call The Big 615. Download the free TuneIn app from the App Store. That's TuneIn. Or ask your device to play The Big 615 on TuneIn. In addition to this, I mean, this has piggybacked on what you just said with Yemen, because now that allows Saudi Arabia to negotiate and really stop the violence coming over the border from Yemen, because part of the Iranian bargain here would be also to stop some of their support of, of those um, particular uh, military movements for, from the, the groups in Yemen. They don't have any, and I think that's good for Yemen overall, too, because they need some internal um, engagement and stabilization. In addition to that, what we've seen, you know, almost instantaneously was A, you know, Iran's re-engagement with Syria diplomatically um, and Egypt and Iranian and Syrian engagement almost, you know, right after this happened. Um, So you're seeing a more the more engagement of all of these players for peace in, in, in the Gulf. And again, I think they're, they're pretty, they're just pretty tired of conflict. And not only that, they're pretty tired of the contraband and things that are going across the border, particularly, and I'm having kind of an old person's mind right now, that those drugs that are going from Syria into Saudi Arabia that are the amphetamine, like the amphetamine problems we're having here. And they are very, very concerned about these things, as well as any other criminal activity that's going back and forth. And Saudi Arabia is just like, okay, that's enough. I've had it. And and I think they were the party to have to lead this because of the influence that they do have on all of the Gulf countries and and including Iraq. And Iraq has also been very uh, active and engaged in this you know, kind of regional negotiation to help bring Iran into the fold because it, I mean, it has probably one of the oldest and and uh, closest relationship to Iran of most of, of the nations other than probably Oman and, and our own region. So, is that good news? It's a very interesting shift. It's going to be a very interesting dynamic to see how the U.S. kind of balances its own position in these areas. I can't help but notice that while this happened. Um, you know, at the time where the world really needed more oil coming, that Saudi Arabia said we're going to we're we're going to not going to give you more. In fact, we're going to do less. And you know, that could have just been plain old self interest. But was there also a little bit of we've got some new friends now, so watch how you talk to us. Oh, absolutely. And I think that that's been 
long time coming. Um, you know, chi China is, although, you know, we are often, we often make China out to be um, our, our newest military threat. And, and in some cases that, that's probably true. They're not a small, you know, military, they're very powerful. But most of the engagement they do is economic, right? It's looking for resources. It's looking for ways to support um, themselves internally. It's looking for how to make their population stronger and live better. I mean, this is how, not that, not that it's 100% happening, but the perceptions and the actions and the behaviors that come out of China are more economically focused. It needs oil, it needs gas until those things change, right? Until we make alternative energy a, a reality. And it's absolutely um, part of the strategy in this geopolitical area moving forward. And Iran, you know, Iran is half owner of one of the major gas, the, the largest gas reserves, right, in, in the world. And um, I think it, it sees a lot of opportunities for those things happening and changing in its own interests. But it's it's looking at shared interests here. And I, you know, I don't know if that's 100% trustworthy, and that depends on the negotiators from Iran and Saudi Arabia, how they look at things, how they decide to view those negotiations and economic um, strategies for exchange. But um, that's the basis of the relationships at this at this point. Okay, let's move back to the region a little bit further to the west, but not exactly the west. This stability movement, how long until that takes effect in the Horn of Africa? I mean, Somalia is always sort of in trouble. Ethiopia was trying to stabilize it, but then they had a famine in which, or something which you know makes them completely incapable of, of, of stabilizing themselves, let alone an, another country. And then Sudan, which we talked about earlier in the last show, had, had a ceasefire brokered. It fell apart. There's, you know, now, now the, the sides are back at each other's throats again. And Suzanne is, you know, just, just a little bit to, to, off into the west, you know, south and west of Egypt right there. And then, you know, Libya as well. And, you know, another place with oil doesn't get a lot of talk for a while, you know, ever since Gaddafi and the, uh, and the Libyan revolt or Arab Spring or whatever. Uh, but what, 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 what's happening over there? Any any cascading effects, good or bad? Yeah, there. Well, there are. I mean, the cascading effects come from the, the um, extended engagement with Russia. I mean, Russia's now um, investing more in Egypt as well as China, and I think together because they 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 found this newfound friendship. Um, these investments are are not only going to be. Um, Better, I think they're going to be more fruitful. Um, but in that context, you know, you're you're seeing alignment between the, the Russians, the Chinese, the Egyptians of who they're supporting and how they are viewing future stability in that area. So that's one thing that you're seeing. I mean, the world is a complicated place. That's particularly complicated. Um, I think we've. We as as you know global global powers and colonialists have really caused a lot of um, divisions in Africa that have been playing out over you know decades, and um, 
I think what's next for that is is African leadership, and we're seeing some of that come out of of that part of the world, particularly the the coalition that came and um, visited President Zelensky and visited President Putin to try to help them work on some peace. Now, I'm not sure, you know, how that all worked out, but at least there's, I know it didn't work out for peace like we saw with China and Saudi Arabia, but at least we're seeing some effort, not only um, of working together, but to have some kind of voice in how they're, they're starting to participate in the international community. So we're seeing these efforts start, I think, as, as um, people who, who care and want to see this globe last a little longer for a little, you know, more generations and want to help the climate and, and you know, the future of, of the world as itself need to think about, what, keep an eye on what's happening there and, and support it. And um, we saw actually this past week that President Macron hosted a summit um, in Paris on financial cooperation in order to tackle some of these issues, health, poverty, climate change in, in Africa and the rest of the world where I'm more worried about it than the West seems to be. So I, I think you're, you're really seeing some global dynamic shift and I hope the U.S. is paying attention. Okay. All right. So uh, I'm sure the next topic on your list, because I'm sure I've, I've taken you all over the place. The next topic on my list, oh my God, I think we got over, <laughs> over a lot of them. The other the other topic I was going to bring up, I think, was one more, which was the, the Davos. Summer Davos is in China right now. And I don't think anybody's paying attention to that very much. But yeah, I don't even know what Summer Davos is. Yeah, so there's Summer Davos. It's in China right now. Um, you have half of the world, you know, in the World Economic Forum hosting this summit. Um, what that the Chinese are calling the new champions, and they're tackling issues as most of these economic forums do on uh, the future of AI. They are piggybacking, I you know, it, it, what it looks like to me on this summit that um, Macron did in Paris on fi financial and world co cooperation try to tackle some of these global problems. So economic hurdles that countries are having, I think people panicked when the US was balking about whether or not it was going to vote against or for the debt ceiling. And that scared a lot of people because they own a lot of debt in America. And I think um, the world is talking about it and we're not paying attention to right. what they're saying. But I think that really, frightened a lot of different countries. And so there's a definite shift in talking about financial cooperation and way to tackle larger problems. And um, they're also, of course, talking about what, what China has now started calling sustainment of nature oh, instead okay. of climate change, which I think was, you know, I thought was a very interesting way of um, looking at this issue because really that's what we have to do in the long run, right? Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, as you know, has a new, I think, documentary out and he's working very hard also on climate change issues. 
And um, I thought his kind of take on it was also very interesting where he said, we're all dying from pollution. We have to figure this out. And so um, when you really think about it, that's what's true. You know, we have all of these plastics in the ocean, all of these plastics getting in all kinds of fish and soil and, you know, feed that not only we eat, but uh, the animals eat that we um well, to, a, to an extent, I, I mean, I remember even as, as a youth, I mean, and this is true, me, in, in my own shoes, in the 80s or 90s, so when I'm a teenager and in, in my 20s, you know, and, and I'm sure it was when I was a teenager, teenager so I'm talking, I, I, I can picture it, talking to my parents in the dining room, in the car, things like that, talking about, you know, the environmental movement is doing, is, is not doing themselves any favors. They're talking about save the planet, save the well, save the this, save the baby seals, save this. Don't, don't, that's not the sales job. Go save us. Go, go save people. Save Manhattan. Save Miami Beach, you know, you know, and, and specifically the buildings, you know, you, that, that's how you get it because, because none of us can see past ourselves even then. And we probably haven't gotten, any better in the last 43 years or so. Um, so, you know, the, yeah, it's, it's too late to go back in time and, and do a better advertising campaign. Um, but you know, that, that, that was, you know, and we all put a lot of faith in technology and, and that we will catch up to it. And there's still disputes as to, I mean, I hear it all the time and not from, not from dumb people. I hear from smart people. I, you know, it's, it's, you know, a volcano just erupted and emitted more carbon than humanity has in its entire existence. And that's probably true. And, and there are cycles. And, and that's, that's unquestionably true. Technically, we're still in the waning period of an, of an ice age, the one that we think caused, you know, the, the, the floods that everyone remembers so biblically. Um, but, um, you know, but there's also a lot of science that says, well, we also increased, you know, the, the temperature of the earth by like, you know, a degree or two degrees within the last hundred years. And, and yes, there's normally climate change silent uh, changes, but they normally take like 5,000 years, 10,000 years, you know, 16,000 years, you know, absent a comet or, or something, um, you know, and it, more, yeah, more they're changing in, within years. So it's, it's quite different. It's just, it's very hard to tell, but I'll tell you, Sitting here in Florida, I can tell you I'm worried about climate change. See, it's like 100 degrees going on 100, and it's only June. So, I mean, by August, I don't know what the temperature is going to be here. Yeah, but you're making the you're making the the, the, the you're making the same mistake that everyone makes to say is confusing weather with climate. Now, weather patterns are climate, but you know, because people say, "Oh, there's always been hurricanes." Yeah, but there there haven't always been. 27 hurricanes by by six weeks into hurricane season and stuff like you know and, and maybe i'm just listening to that side of the argument more now than the other but maybe i should be i you know i i i try to keep an open mind to things i try to listen to contrarians uh but i mean well, my view is that if you cut down all the trees you're not gonna have any oxygen right so yeah. there's got to be some implication if you cut down the forest so I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not a biologist or any of those things, but I think just thinking about implications of behavior, if we keep paving, you know, every garden, pretty soon there's, you know, only going to be pavement on the road, and that has to cause problems for little creatures and, and the cycle of life, as you put it. So it's not, you know, human beings cause 
problems. <laughs> and sometimes we, we, you know, and we're all, we're all problem makers and we're all part of that system, you know. Um, so as, as the population grows and as food, you know, necessities increase, more and more land gets used for different purposes. People build bigger buildings, you know, it's just, it's a cycle. And, and I, and I, I think this is back to your point where, you know, it's time, you know, you need to take a deep breath, not get overwhelmed because of the seals and the this and the that and everything else. And you have to say, okay, how do we work to start start mitigating this issue from one step at a time? It's like writing a book, right? Or writing a high school paper or thesis or your doctorate. You have to start on page one. And sometimes what's best is to not even write a whole chapter at a time, but to write one like five pages at a time and paper in increments. Right. So we need to acknowledge what's happening and then we need to think together as a society and as people. And I, I think people are smart and I think we have the tools and capabilities. Um, what I often worry about is that we don't have the leadership. Well, we people are smart until their economic interests get adversely affected okay. and then yeah. they then they find ways to rationalize and convince themselves. And by people, I include myself in that. I, I don't do anything to actively help the environment. I have a pretty sedentary, small life, so I, I, I probably don't do that much to harm it either. But I, I'm, I'm reading a book, and I, I'm not going to say the name and the author, but it's someone who, who's written a bunch of books, very successful, well-researched. And he said that during the, the you know, when we were hunter-gatherers, that human beings use, not just eat, you know, because it sounds like they use 4,000 calories a day. So, and that includes the 2,000 calories a day you're supposed to eat or whatever they ate, but, but also use. And human beings now use 228,000 calories um, per day per human. So it's like 60 times more, some, something, so, something like that. And, 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 and the books, right. And the books, <laughs> and that and, and that's like our cal caloric footprint, sort of how people measure our carbon footprint. Oh, I see. Um, I, listen, obviously, someone who can figure that out, or, or even find the people who can figure that out to tell him that to know they even ask the question is is so much smarter than me. Um, but uh, yeah, that was yeah. I mean, again, it's a cycle, right? People were not so sedentary then; they moved around for for food. They didn't have a lot of goods. You know, they, there were no really services. You got your own dinner, right? Yeah, well, you know, there wasn't electricity, food. there wasn't gas, there wasn't. Your friends, and yeah, so, and, and again, so we become sedentary and we sit and we expect someone else to do stuff for us, which is all fine and good, but it needs to be, I think, re thought about a little bit because things are happening to the planet and we need to sustain nature. So that's what I'm saying from now on. Sustaining nature is a good. So you're adopting the Chinese uh, principles. Well, well, <laughs> I didn't say it's Chinese. That's at Davos. So okay, I don't know okay. they China, but that's what they're calling it at Davos now. Well, well, they do have good expressions. I mean, they always have had good expressions. I mean, if there's one thing you can say about the Chinese, they've always made good sayings that, that last for hundreds, thousands of years. So. Right. Like I said earlier, know your enemy better than you know your friend. So. Probably a Chinese saying, right? Win without fighting. Another Chinese proverb, which is very dear to my heart. There you go. All right. Uh, what what else is on your list of topics, if anything? So I think the last thing 
Um, my list of topics was just thinking about the starting of the election season. Mm. And I think a lot of things are interesting to me. It's almost starting out the same way as far as the Republican side as it did last time with about 20 people jumping in there. Which I, I think is kind of healthy, actually. I think there are a lot more people, a lot more thoughts, a lot more, you know, discussion and dialogue is more healthy. Now, nasty rhetoric is not. So what I would really like to see is some of these candidates start talking about issues and start talking about the situation of the American people and how much more important it is for us to be united than divided. Um, I'll circle that right back to what we saw in Russia. Okay, there's or what we're seeing in Russia with with the Wagner group, right? Obviously, there is a big division in Russia about this invasion of Ukraine, and that's enough to to really bring down the country when you think about it. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Where is the United States of America? How do we want to bring down our own country if we can't get united? We have to get figure out a way to be able to discuss issues, to be able to debate again. Remember the debating club? Mm-hmm. Remember when they had debating clubs? I love that. You know, it's really just fun to talk about issues and see how you can figure it out. Not about one way or the other, but about thinking about what, how can we make a win-win, right? And these are these are strategies that are being used by China, by Iran, by Russia, looking at win-win. So maybe there's some things we should learn and we need to work on here at home. Yes, we should. And it'd be nice if the country could just get back to actually trying to educate children as opposed to indoctrinate them. And that and that and whoever's hearing that message and going, yes, yes, yes there's a pretty good chance that you're on one side of the indoctrination. Um, because on one side, everyone's like, oh, we want God back in the classroom. No, we don't. But on the other side, we're like, four-year-olds should be getting drag queens. No, they shouldn't. The, their parents should decide if they should. They never had, but, 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 but parents should have a say in that. But, and have been around since the, the, the black and white movies. Remember? Oh, but well older than that. I mean, but, but I'm just saying the parents should have a say in that, but they shouldn't have a say in whether or not kids read Huck Finn or not. We should, we should just stick to education. I think you, you put your, your, your finger on, on the point. And that's exactly um, what we need to do. The, the government should not be... Um, legalizing or you know legislating these these types of decision making we need to make sure parents get involved in their children's upbringing and their education my mother was a teacher and she always paid attention to what i was reading what i was doing how i was learning Mm -hmm. and there's two things that were most important in my family one was to be educated and two was to think critically okay so that meant from the time I was 0100, <laughs> um, if I wanted to buy a bi- ride a bicycle, okay, I had to do my research about bicycles, get it all together, and tell my parents why or why not I should be able to ride a bicycle. And they would give me a yes or no based on that 
how I made my 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 case, basically, right? So, I you know I think it's important to be diverse. It's important to be able to read all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But what's important is that you discuss what you're reading and think about the how that that is incorporated into things that are happening in the world every day. You have to learn to think about it. Again, go back to debating about it. It's no, it's no good to ban a book. Right. I mean, I'd rather ban. We, we, we should. We're going to ban Marx. I mean, you know, we don't ban these things. We read yeah. them and discuss them and talk about them and how the implications of that philosophy impact society. Right. There's also a hundred years of showing that there's never actually been a government or country that's achieved uh, what he was writing about. So, I mean, there's there, there's that too. I mean. Theories are wonderful. Everyone's got theories, but unless it's math, it, 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 you know, theories usually get right. influenced by funny things like people <laughs> and self-interest. Right. And I, you know, and I do think also it's important to talk about history. One thing I've learned in the international security and teaching international affairs for the last fifteen plus years is that history does mean something because if you don't understand the history of people that you're engaging with and working with, you miss so much of the dynamic of why that person is reacting the way they are, why they're answering questions the way they are, why they even dress or eat the way they do. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so much wealth in historical information. And thinking about how that's affected these societies today. And so, not speaking about our own history puts us also at a disservice. Now, it might make you uncomfortable, like the Holocaust makes me really uncomfortable, slavery makes me really uncomfortable, but if I don't understand the foundations of my country, I can't make a better life today for those people who feel that they had a disservice, right? And you, a lot of times grievances are grievances and they are legitimate. Now, is the whole narrative behind that grievance legitimate? Maybe not, but it comes from somewhere. And so I have. it's important that we honor people's feelings and we help them deal with those feelings and again, make a better life for all of us. We're not trying to make a bad life for people. And if that's what you're doing, you need to get out of the political legislation leadership business and go, <laughs> Go, go to your own place. Yes. <laughs> Make your own bad things. So. I agree with that. Also, but uh, I, I need to remind myself that no one's really here to hear what I, I, I agree with. They're here to hear what, what you've got to say. And they get to hear from me, you know, at this point, sometimes three times a week. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, there's definitely something that, you know, if you don't learn about things that make you uncomfortable and be able to deal with things that make you uncomfortable, that are supposed to make you uncomfortable, by the way, then really small, silly things make you uncomfortable and you have no ability to cope with them. Also, you have no idea how to, you don't know how to recognize signs that can, you know, that where you can slip and slide accidentally, unintentionally into the same uncomfortable situation, which, you know, could be avoided. They say, you know, people say history repeats itself, and then they say history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. It does both. 
you know, the, the point is, is that understanding history and understanding the causes will also understand, help you to understand how to avoid repeating the same mistakes. Will you make new mistakes? Yes. <laughs> but they're new mistakes. And then, you know, the future generations, hopefully they're not catastrophic, but, you know, but the future generations will learn from those as well. Um, anyway, uh, if you. I mean, one of the yeah. places you, you, know, you, you, you said at the beginning, you know, I've worked a lot in the Balkans and, you know, people talk about balkanization and all of this stuff right. and divide you know, societies. And this is very historical. I mean, people have memories back to the Ottoman Empire. Mm -hmm. And if I don't understand what that means to them and their society, there's nothing, there's no reason for me to, to figure out how to study it and understand maybe what policies we should be thinking about in order to, again, work on their interests and U.S. interests in that region. So if I don't understand history and what the pain and, and, and joy they've been through, then I, I'm missing two sides of the story, either side, one side of the coin. And the older the human society is, the more grievances they have that we don't that we don't even know, and they might not even so. So probably somewhere in the middle of the Serengeti, there, there there's there's grievances that people have had for a hundred thousand years or so that it, 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 to a certain degree. I mean, I, I have one of one of my other podcast partners in another world. Hi, Jimmy. He he's he's still mad about things that, that probably predate you know the first millennium. BCE, um, you, you, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and you know, it's not really important where, but we were talking about uh, adjacent to parts of the world that have to do with that, and and that's not alone. There, there, there's far older, you know. I mean, probably some of the things that are, that are in Afghanistan that keeps it from being united go, go back to seventy five thousand years or something. That in, in some regards. So anyway. All right. Well, we've hit the hour mark, so I don't know if you have anything else that you you wanted to touch on. So yeah. So so then let's just uh, let's just let them know where to find you if you want to be found. Uh, PatriciaDiGennaro.com. You can find me there, and um, yeah, send me your thoughts. Okay. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you again, Professor, for being generous with your time. We'll schedule another one in in a couple months, and I'll try to get this up in the next couple of days. Thank you all for listening to Garden Views. And please give us a rating and a review and refer us to your friends. Garden Views and its sister show, Garden Doom. Very different, but sort of similar. I'm the similar part. Um, all right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.
Hey there, it's your friend Stormy Warren here, and I want to invite you to my new home, The Big 615, exclusively on TuneIn. It's the official home of country music broadcasting live from Nashville to the world. Get the latest on country music, from your favorite artists to the hottest songs climbing up the charts. Oh, and it's commercial free. Hear it all on The Stormy Warren Show, weekdays from 7 a.m. to 1 p.m. Central. Download the free TuneIn app from the App Store. That's TuneIn. Or ask your device to play The Big 615 on TuneIn. Tune in. Hey there, it's your friend Stormy Warren here, and I want to invite you to my new home, The Big 615, exclusively on TuneIn. So what is The Big 615? Well, simply put, it's the official home of country music broadcasting live from Nashville to the world. Download the TuneIn app from the App Store. That's TuneIn. And by the way, yes, it's free. You can also ask your device to play The Big 615 on TuneIn. Get the latest on country music from your favorite artists to the hottest songs climbing up the charts. Oh, and it's commercial free. That means a whole lot more music and a whole lot more country. Hear it all on the Stormy Warren Show weekdays from 7 a.m. to 1 p.m. Central. Download the TuneIn app from the App Store. That's TuneIn. And by the way, yes, it's free. You can also ask your device to play The Big 615 on TuneIn. And I look forward to having you join me on The Big 615. This is your country station. The Big 615.